You are listening to Rouge, White and Blue, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. Welcome to the Rouge, White and Blue CFL Podcast. My name's Oz Davis, and whereas normally I would be co-hosting the show, I will not be doing so today. You can take as my excuse either I'm very busy right now or I just play suck. Luckily, my partner Joe Pritchard is on hand. He came through a clutch to arrange the following interview with John Hodge of Three Down Nation. Please note that this interview was conducted and recorded before the recent news regarding the seemingly inevitable player strike being settled before any serious damage to the schedule was done. Enjoy this episode of the Rouge, White, and Blue CFL Podcast. Welcome to the Rouge, White, and Blue Podcast. My name is Joe Pritchard, and I'm not usually the one doing this part of the show, but I do have John Hodge with me from Three Down Nation. John, how is your evening going so far? It's going well, Joe. How about yours? Uh, it'd be going a lot better if we had some clarity on the CFL as to whether <laughs> we're going to be kicking the ball off anytime soon, but you take what you can get, right? I think you absolutely take what you can get. Well, I, I'm optimistic that this thing will be over in the next little bit, but obviously that remains to be seen. And uh, here's hoping that that very soon we will get the good news that, yes, we are playing football and we're doing so very, very soon. Yeah, I will say it was like Saturday when I was seeing that oh, they're not actually going to get a deal done today that I first had any sort of doubt or worry about it. And now it's just been like consuming me for the last three or four days. So good times, especially when you have plane tickets in three weeks. So no we'll kidding, see. Eh? We'll see. <laughs> so uh, just to just since we're talking about the elephant in the room. What do you know about what the sticking points are? What are, what's what's keeping a deal from happening? I think at the end of the day, the these two sides are not far apart. I don't think they have been for a long time. Um, ever since the the CFLPA, the union came out and you know more or less said, okay, like this is you know this is going back a couple of weeks, but more or less saying like, okay, this is. This is what we've been offered. It's a 10-year CBA with a flat cap the whole time, yada, yada, yada. Um, You know, obviously the deal's been upped. And the CFL has reportedly agreed to a number of concessions that, frankly, I never thought we would see in the CFL. One of them is partially guaranteed contracts for veterans. Veteran players, you know, according to the reports, will be able to sign multi-year deals and have portions, not the whole thing, but portions of the second year guaranteed, which I think fans will love to hear because I know fans are very sick and tired of seeing players job hop from year to year to year, constantly switching teams. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, in addition to that, um, you know, there's, there's revenue sharing on the table. Like there has not previously been. Uh, but I think that is still the biggest sticking point because at the end of the day, the CFLPA has yet to be guaranteed full clarity on exactly what is at play um, for the CFL financial-wise, how much money they truly are making. And though the CFL has trumpeted the fact that they have agreed to 
revenue sharing. In some instances, what they failed to mention is that not all of that revenue that they bring in uh, is included in the revenue sharing. And they've also declined to have a CFLPA um, accountant or auditor go through those numbers and make sure that they're accurate. So, you know, the CFL has talked repeatedly about how they want to be partners with the players and they value their partnership with the players. Well, as anybody knows in a business partnership, if your partner's not willing to actually tell you how much money the business is making, that's not a partnership. That That is something completely different. So I think they're close, uh, but I think the biggest sticking point is the issue of revenue sharing. And I think another big issue um, maybe not to the same extent as the players not wanting to agree to padded practices without having more uh, potential, uh, will be the right term, more guarantees regarding personal health and safety because the CFL went away from padded practices for the last three years. The CFLPA has claimed that injuries have dropped 35%. And they said, hey, we can go back to padded practices, but we want a better and uh, more comprehensive health plan if we're going to be dealing with more injuries as a result of this new policy. So those are some of the sticking points. But again, I, I don't think they're far apart. And, and at the end of the day, I'm hopeful that this thing's going to get done very soon. Mm-hmm. And, and I could see the padded practices being a give back because the CFP, CFLPA worked uh, very hard to get those eliminated. And then to have them come back, they're obviously have to be something from the CFL to balance to balance that out, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And, and if I may wade into the area of personal opinion for a moment, you know, this is something that I think the CFL has to get over because at the end of the day, padded practices are a necessity at certain positions. And I also think we have to trust the CFL and its coaches to some extent because if I'm just, again, speaking at random, if, if I'm the Calgary Stampeders, I'm not saying, oh, we got padded practices today. Well, let's make sure Bo takes hits for the next hour, right? You're not, you're not saying, oh, let's send Reggie Bagleton over the middle and have him get lit up by our starting safety. That's, that's not how this works. How it will work is, hey, we just drafted this offensive lineman out of you know Regina. He needs reps. He needs to get better. And under the current rules that do not allow for padded practices, it's, it's created a real issue for developing players along the line of scrimmage because many of them are backups, which means they don't get real reps in games and they don't have padded practices, which means they don't get real reps in practice. How can you expect a young Canadian offensive lineman out of youth sports to get better if he's not hitting people in practice and actually going with the pads and, and emulating a real game situation. So that is an area in which I think the CFL PA should have some give, but again, that's just my personal opinion. Um, and it's also my opinion because frankly, I, I do want the level of Canadian offensive linemen to improve in this league because the better the offensive linemen are, the more passing we're going to see, the more healthy quarterbacks we're going to see. So um, if the CFL PA number is, is correct at 35%, you know, okay, it's a shame that we've had more injuries in the past, but maybe we would have fewer quarterback injuries, right? If our offensive linemen league wide, were playing at a higher level. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the league has spent a lot of time this off season talking about rule changes to make the, uh, to make the offenses go again, where they've been struggling over the past few years. Uh, so I could see this building on top of that as well to help spur the off- the offensive development of players 
team's personnel uh, and maybe with some of these multi-year guarantees, you can have a little bit more cohesion on the rosters too. So you can see the CFL trying to build uh, a little bit more instead of being helter-skelter with the rosters and throwing things out there the way they have been, trying to build offenses to last rather than being having to be pieced together every offseason. Exactly. And at the end of the day, I think that, you know, fans fully recognize that, you know, well, and I, I'll, let me preface it by saying this. I think even the most defensive oriented coaches, you know, fans, etc., realize that what sells tickets is offense. Right. You know, there there are there are people who are happy to watch a, a 12 10 CFL game. Um, but those people probably also eat saltines for dinner. Um, it seems a little boring to me. seems a little bland. I like defense, okay, but at the end of the day, I would rather watch a 42-35 game than that 12-10 game. That's just my personal opinion. When they're um, all 12-10 games or 20-17 to 17 games, they get a little old. Exactly. And so, you know, that's one area in which the NFL, I do think, has done a very good job over the past five to 10 years is ensuring that offenses will be successful. Offenses can put big numbers up on the board. And they also do a very clever job, I think, with their scheduling, because what the NFL can do with their, you know, depending on the week, 13 to 16 game slates is they can put games that they know are going to be stinkers into that early slot on Sunday and they put the big time games in prime time. So, you know, if a CFL game is a dud, 10 to 12, well, there's nothing competing against it. There's no other CFL games running concurrently. And everybody and on, sees it. Exactly. And, and everybody goes on Twitter and goes, ah, oh, this game's boring. Go to four downs, blah, 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 blah. When the reality is like, well, did you watch the, the Texans and the Jaguars last weekend? I, I didn't. And that game was awful. Um, so the CFL doesn't have that luxury. The CFL needs to get more points. And I think they've taken a lot of positive steps this off season to ensuring that happens. Now, something I was noticing on last week's insider column you do for three down nation. Uh, it seems like there's some concern about young players leaving the game earlier and earlier. Now, uh, a couple of Canadian draft picks just this week decided to call it quits what can the league do to keep these players around? They spend all the time scouting and trying to, and trying to find them and develop them. And then after a year or maybe not even that long, they're out the door and that doesn't help your cohesion either. Is that it? Is there something the league can do uh, on that front to try to keep the talent in, in house rather than going off into the world to start their, start their, basically their real life jobs. Well, the, the player who most recently stepped away at a young age was Matlin Riley offensive lineman, who was a first round pick out of the university of Saskatchewan in 2020 um, was basically out all of 2021 um, due to a couple of issues. Uh, I believe the, the primary reason he missed time was a non COVID related illness. Um, and that means, you know, and, and let's also point this out. Riley is an engineer. Um, so if you're someone with an engineering degree, a computer science degree, um, you know, you, you can often make at or close to six figures straight out of school. 
And that's not something that the average player can necessarily do, depending on, you know, what, what type of education you have, what your major was, et cetera. But we are in a situation where in 2019 on the last CBA, they negotiated slotted contracts for all CFL draft players. And the reason they did that was because we had a bit of an unfortunate string of first round picks like Faith the Kakati going to Winnipeg at number one in 2017 being a prime example. We had guys making six figures in their rookie season and not contributing. And I love the CFL draft. I have a deep respect and admiration for the U sports game. Um, but I do think we also have to be prudent and say, okay, that's, that's fair. You know, U sports players are not always ready to contribute on a, you know, a, a high comprehensive level as rookies in the CFL. They often need a year to get acclimatized to the pro game, get used to the speed, continue building their bodies. And then they hit it big in year two, year three, whatever. Um, so the reason that, that, that change was implemented to break was, was essentially to, to prevent situations like that. So I, I believe as the first overall pick in the draft, Tyrell Richards this year in Montreal is only able to collect. I think if he hits on every bonus, I believe it's $78,000. Whereas if this was five years ago, he might be getting 105. Um, so if you're Matlin Riley and you're sitting there going, okay, so a few years ago, I'd be making $98,000 as a rookie to play for my hometown Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And maybe even I only sign a two year deal and then hit it big the third year. Cause if I'm a starter, I'm probably getting 150, 160. Now he's going, okay, so I had to sign a three-year contract and every year I'm making less than 80 grand. Well, if I went and did my engineering, you know, I, I'm, I'm making more than that easily the first three years and then my, my career is off and I'm, I'm making big money. So I think that is the situation the CFL has run into in this instance. And if they don't keep that minimum salary going up and there are talks that as part of these contract negotiations, you're going to see the minimum salary go up to 70,000, then go up to 75,000, which I think is very smart. Then, uh, you know, that, that helps, but I don't think it fixes the problem. I do think you need that, that, that floor to be even higher to prevent blue chip prospects from going, you know, and, and Matlin Riley's not the first one to do it. And their university of Saskatchewan prospect, um, Evan Macabrota, defensive tackle did the exact same thing a few years ago, retiring from the Edmonton Elks. To, to do the same thing. He's, he's an engineer and probably making more money than he ever would have playing in the CFL, at least certainly than he would have on his rookie contract. So I do think that raising the floor would help the league in the long term. Now, the veterans don't want to do that because obviously if the rookies are making more, that's less the, for them. Exactly. <laughs> unless the cap goes up dramatically, then it's it's less for them. So that's that's the the other side of that double edged sword. And we've seen over and over and over again in pro sports when CBAs are drafted, it's the veterans aren't taking care of the rookies and, at all in in the re, in the most recent past. Exactly, exactly, and and you know to be honest, I mean rookies are not even really considered part of the union, right? If to be part of the union, you have to have experience, and if you're, you know, a rookie out of you know Arizona State. Just, you know, to pick a random school, you're, you signed your first contract last week and now you're in a camp. You don't have voting rights. And so that that is certainly an issue where, you know, the union, you know, it, it's it's supposed to, you know, act on the behalf of all union members. But guess what? Rookies are not technically union members. So nope. there's not as much nearly as much of a reason to to fight for them. Absolutely. So we're not too concerned then about 
a large exodus of young players not wanting to stick around. So that's like always good news. Um, but since we're on the topic of the youngsters, uh, you do know a lot more about the CFL draft than certainly I do. And probably most of the rest of the uh, planet does. Uh, so <laughs> let me just get your impressions about how things went. Uh, Montreal made the big move. Uh, up to the top to start off the draft. And then Edmonton spent some time in the first round making some interesting moves. What were your impressions of how the early rounds went? Well, I mean, I'll say this overall, I, I think this is probably the weakest class of players I've covered. And there's a few reasons for that. The, the biggest reason would be that last year, the NCAA allowed basically every player with eligibility to do an additional year of, of college and continue playing. So a lot of the best players who are actually coming out of college currently were in last year's draft, right? And we saw that with a guy like Deshaun Stevens, defensive lineman out of um, West Virginia, formerly Maine, just signed with the Ottawa Red Blacks. He was their first pick last year. Um, and there have been a number of guys like that uh, who were the drafted last year and have signed in the CFL or were drafted last year and have signed in the NFL. Offensive lineman Sage Doxtater signed as an undrafted free agent with the New Orleans Saints. Um, Dean Leonard, who was a third-round pick last year, the Hamilton Tiger Cats defensive back out of Old Miss, uh, was a seventh-round pick of the Chargers. So he actually got drafted in the NFL this year. So this year's draft was largely um, only U sports players or, uh, or NCAA players who, for one reason or another, um, I guess, decided essentially not to go back for a, another senior season because they could have gone back and played college ball in 2022, uh, but they're here. So Tyrell Richards, I have extremely high expectations for him. Um, six foot four, 232, made his impression at, at Syracuse largely as a pass rushing, you know, stand up linebacker. Um, but with his combination of size, speed, you know, quickness, I think he could do a, a bunch of things for, for the Alouettes. I mean, he's, he's got very similar measurables to a guy like Taylor Loeffler. Like I could even see Montreal putting him back there at the safety spot. If, if he's able to learn that position, I could see him at weak side linebacker. I could see him as a pass rusher, as, as like a defensive end, um, in, in, you know, second and long situations. So, um, he's a heck of a player. And to me, he's, he's head and shoulders above anybody else who is available. Um, to me, the two shocks were one, Chris Jones didn't want Tyrell Richards apparently and traded him away. That was a shock for me. Um, he traded that pick to Montreal and used the fourth overall selection on Enoch Picanzo, defensive back linebacker hybrid out of coastal Carolina, fantastic player, but did not run a 40 yard dash was not willing to do so. Um, and is a lot smaller than Tyrell Richards, Enoch Picanzo. I don't have any official measurements, but the belief is he's he's around six feet and and maybe just shy of 200 pounds. Um, the other really huge storyline that I think got a lot of people who don't necessarily follow the CFL draft or maybe don't have a huge interest in the CFL draft talking was the fact that Trey Ford, quarterback out of Waterloo, went in the first round. He was the first quarterback taken in the first round of the CFL draft since 1980, 42 years that's amazing. And if you'd said, you know, 
even five years ago, hey, there's going to be a quarterback taken in the first round of this draft, you would have said, you're, you're kidding. Like, you, you never would have believed it. Two years or three years ago, we saw Michael O'Connor be a third round pick out of UBC. Uh, a couple of years ago, we saw Nathan Rourke taken in the second round um, out of Ohio. And now we finally got into that first round spot. And this is something I think the CFL has finally figured out is there are quarterbacks who can play in this league for a long time. Quarterbacks didn't even count as Canadians on the roster, which meant that not only was there no incentive to draft a quarterback, there was actually a disincentive because you're using a Canadian draft pick to take a player who is not going to count as a Canadian on your roster. They fixed that um, partially because now if a Canadian quarterback starts for you, that does count as one of your seven Canadian starters. They still don't count as a Canadian on the roster, which needs to change, but they fixed it somewhat. And I always said, if the CFL manages to get this right and fix this, I do think that we will see teams consider playing Canadian quarterbacks. Some people agreed with me. Some people thought I was crazy. And lo and behold, we've got a Canadian starter in 2022. That's, of course, Mr. Rourke, who will be starting in BC, his hometown province where he was born. And we've got Trey Ford, who I think is going to make the Edmonton Elks final roster. Um, is he going to play quarterback this year? I'm not sure. That depends on how things play out with Taylor Cornelius and Nick Carbuckle and all those things. But he's certainly going to contribute. I think he's going to contribute on special teams. And I do think we're going to, at the very least, see him rotating in and around that offense as a playmaker of sorts, somebody who can throw the ball, catch the ball, run the ball, all those things, because he is an unbelievable athlete. So those would be my big three takeaways. First one, not a deep class, but second, holy smokes, Terrell Richards is good. And number three, we finally got a Canadian quarterback in the first round of the draft, which again, hasn't happened since 1980. Crazy. Neither of us were born by at that point, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, I was no. I was not even a thought in 1980. Neither was I. So that's how long ago we're talking. Uh, so with Ford, they don't Edmonton doesn't even necessarily need to dress him as a quarterback. Uh, Chris Jones has always had unique ideas on how to uh, put talent on rosters and uh, and how to deploy said talent once he has them on the rosters. So I could easily see Trey Ford playing the Jordan Lynch role where he was. They, they had three quarterback slots at that point, but Jordan Lynch was, was playing uh, up back on the punt block team and a few other or punt punting team, I should say. Uh, and you could see Ford, especially, especially with the fact that he's Canadian being just on the roster and, deployed any which way chris jones has ideas for him so i could easily see him making the team just from his versatility from from the sounds of it um i wouldn't i wouldn't uh be able to walk away from this conversation without having to ask did the what do we think about Tyrell Ford in the second round for the Bombers. Was that a situation where the talent was just too good to pass up at that point? I think so. Yes. I, I mean, I, I think Winnipeg was going into this draft saying, you know, okay, we really want to add an old lineman. Um, however, when the news came out that Liam Dobson, their first round pick from 2021, perfect example of the player we were talking about earlier, who went back to school for an extra senior season of college football rather than turning pro in 2021, um, his opportunity with the USFL fell through due to a citizenship issue. 
Um, so all of a sudden, I think that changed things. And I mean, the all, every team, right, always says, oh, we took the best player available. We're not drafting for positional need. I, I don't think that's always true. Um, but in this case, I, I do think it was true for Winnipeg. I think they said, okay, well, we we don't, we're, we're not going to overdraft an O-lineman we don't really like um, just because we need one. Um, and the two that I think they really liked, Zach Pelios out of Ottawa and Cyril Hogan-Saint-Don out of Laval, were off the board at that point anyways. So you go, okay, Tyrell Ford, he he's a Canadian player, but he runs under 4-4, which is incredibly fast. He's one of a handful of players in the history of the CFL Combine who's run sub 4-4. Actually, he might have run 4-4-2 at the Combine, but even, even in the low 4-2s, He's one of the fastest players in the history of the CFL Combine. Um, he's got good size. He's six feet, um, about 190 pounds. Um, and he's a guy who projects as, a, as as somebody who could start a corner, potentially even halfback, though that is not a position where teams traditionally play Canadians. And certainly safety. He's super smart. Um, this is, of course, Trey's, Trey's, Trey's twin brother. And uh, they're both the kind of young men who I think will be successful uh, on or off the field. They, these guys are, are not guys who need football to be successful. They will, they would be successful. I think in any enterprise that, um, that, that they would pursue post university. So anyway, I, I think it certainly, it was, it was a good pick. Um, I think it was one of my top value picks coming out of the draft. Uh, I did not see Terrell Ford slipping out of the top 10. Uh, and he did now, obviously, there's a million different ways that a draft can play out. Uh, but a few guys snuck into the first round who I wasn't necessarily anticipating would be there. Um, and I thought, okay, if even if even if Terrell Ford gets out of the first round, I think he's going at 10 to Toronto. And I think Toronto was very happy to find Deontay Knight at a Western still on the board. So they scooped up Knight. And then it's like, okay, wow. Well, Terrell Ford at 13. I'm sure the Bombers were very happy with that. I mean, they they said it publicly, but there's a difference between saying it publicly and actually believing it. In this case, I think the Bombers said it publicly, and I think they actually meant it. It's a very good pick. Now, the question is, will he sign? And I think right now, if you're, you know, whether whether you're talking Liam Dobson, who we mentioned a moment ago, or any other player, right, who is in a situation where, you know, you you, you maybe have an NFL opportunity. Remember, Liam Dobson had a couple of rookie mini camps in the NFL, Tyrell Richards had a, or pardon me, Tyrell Ford had a couple of NFL mini camp invites. He was with the Jets and then he was with the Steelers. If you're somebody who even has a 1% chance of signing in the NFL, I think you wait until the strike is over, at least that way, right? At least that way you're available if the NFL comes calling. And it's not like you're doing yourself any favors signing a contract halfway through a strike. So will Tyrell Ford be with Winnipeg this season? I think the answer is yes, but I don't think that will happen. Uh, until this strike is resolved, if if it does happen this year. Yeah, we'll check back on that next week, hopefully, or later if uh, the chips don't fall the right way for that. But I'm choosing to be hopeful at the moment. Hopefully we have something better to talk about next week. So assuming that uh, we have the season we're expecting to have, and this is just a bump in the road, I've talked to a few people already. And it feels like there's this, I wouldn't say it's a consensus, but it feels like the East might be stronger than the West this year. Is that, uh, am I just talking to the wrong people or does that feel like it's at least on the table? Well, I I've talked to a few people who, who would say the exact same thing. And I I don't think it's off base at all. I, I think you could certainly make an argument. Like, even if you just look at the quarterbacks, right? Nathan Rourke is unproven in BC. I'm high on him but he's unproven. 
if you look at Edmonton, they don't have anybody proven there, right? Nick Arbuckle is is a journeyman at this point. Um, Taylor Cornelius is certainly not proven yet. Bo Levi Mitchell's a future Hall of Famer, but is he healthy, right? He hasn't been healthy in a long time. Saskatchewan, Cody Fajardo was was not nearly as good in 2021 as he was in 2019 when he was the West Division's nominee for MOP. I still think he's a good quarterback, but you know he didn't take that step to being an elite quarterback that I think some people were hoping to see him take in 2021 so yeah then you look at the east and it's like okay well you know hamilton's got dane evans there matthew schultz good backup you know montreal they've got probably the best situation in the entire league they've got vernon adams jr and they've got trevor harris both of whom in my opinion are are proven starters ottawa i think has finally figured it out jeremiah masoli healthy ready to rip there and then in toronto i mean mcleod bethel thompson fizzled out at the end of last year a little bit but he did lead the CFL in touchdown passes just two seasons ago. So I think quarterback-wise, the East is stronger. Um, and usually the division with the better quarterbacks is going to win more games. So it's been a while since we saw the East division dominate the West division in the CFL. Um, I think the last time that happened was probably like 2015 and something like you know 18 the last 20 years. The West division has had the upper hand. But I do think that this could be the year where the East, at least, at the very least, I'm confident that the the East Division will level the playing field. But I do think there's a very reasonable chance that they actually get the upper hand over their West Division rivals. Okay. Well, it, so, so from what I'm hearing, the East is at least is going to be is going to be uh, at least competitive. My fearless prediction this year is that the East crosses over. I have very little faith in BC. Edmonton is in that Chris Jones is in that Chris Jones vortex where the first year he gets there, he has to go and change players like laundry. So that's usually not a <laughs> recipe for success. Year two, we'll we'll talk about year two next year. And that'll be a much different situation. He'll have he'll have more of a base or more of a base to work from. But that first year, if if his if his reign in Saskatchewan taught us anything, it's that players are going to be in and out of that camp like crazy. So uh, that's not a great sign for stability or wins. So with BC and Edmonton, not really. I don't really have a whole lot of hope for if either. Saskatchewan or Calgary slides, and I don't really think Saskatchewan had a great offseason. Well, there's the door. Door's wide open. That third spot could end up being an Eastern Eastern one. Um, so uh, just to just before you go though, do you happen to have a fearless prediction for this season? My bold prediction would be that Calgary misses the playoffs. That would be my bold prediction. The uh, I think the Calgary is thin along the offensive line. Um, they had two. They, they drafted two offensive linemen uh, in the CFL draft this year, and both have already retired, which is wild. One of them, I think, was due to injury, but uh, they, they're thin along the offensive line. Bo has not been healthy in a couple of years. He says he's throwing pain free and he claims that he's feeling great, um, but and I'm not saying he's lying, but I'm always skeptical when players say that because what else are they going to say? No, no right. veteran player is going to come out and say, ah, I feel like crap. Yeah. Like my arm's not working and like that. That doesn't happen. He, he, you know, he would say that he feels great regardless of whether or not he does feel great. So 
you know, and then I, come I, along week three, he's on the sixth game, and we don't hear from him again all year. <laughs> exactly. So if, if Bo is healthy and he is the Bo of old, then I will look very foolish for predicting that they missed the playoffs. But um, you know, Edmonton's going to be a scrappy team. I think they're going to play really well on defense. Uh, offensively, I'm not sure how they're going, how many points they're going to put up, but we'll see. Uh, BC is a young team. Obviously, Nathan Rourke will have to develop quickly if he's going to lead that team to the playoffs. But that that would be my bold prediction if I were to make one. Calgary misses the playoffs in the West, and I think it's going to be uh, another for the third consecutive year. I think it'll be a race between the two Prairie franchises to see which one wins the West final. Winnipeg's won the last two, and we'll see how this one goes in 2022. And you know that the Riders are going to go all in this year with it being at home. So they're not going to get, they're not going to give it up easily. I just, I don't. And I'm, I'm hoping it's not my bomber blue in me saying this, but I didn't like their off season. I don't know if, I don't know what to expect out of them this year. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I think, I think a full year of Duke Williams could be pretty spectacular. Um, to me, the question with, with Saskatchewan, and I, I think their defense will be very good too. Um, but my question with Saskatchewan is how does Cody Fajardo handle the pressure? Because I think there were times last year, like it, his, his, his road in 2019 was so easy because he went into the season as the backup. You're always popular as the backup. And for those who don't remember that season started off with Zach Kolaris, taking a headshot from Simone Lawrence goes out week one and everybody in Saskatchewan goes, okay, our season's over. Like, like we're going to be lucky to win any games without our starting quarterback. And Cody Fajardo goes in there, competes, wins a bunch of games. They finish 13 and five and he's the MOP candidate from the West division. Like the expectations were ultra low and the delivery was off the charts. Now, 2021, guess what? He comes into the season expectations are through the roof because he's just had quite literally an MOP caliber season. And the, the reality is he had a pretty good year. It wasn't a bad year. Um, he missed some throws. He had a hard time connecting on, on the deep ball, but he still ran for lots of yardage. He still got that team wins consistently, got them to uh, the postseason, and they won a postseason game. They won the West semi against Calgary, um, but the expectations are going to be ramped up even higher. And I think there were times last year we saw we saw Cody. He's an emotional guy, right? Um, we saw times last year where he looked a little bit spooked or we could we saw that he got a little bit agitated. There were times where he said things in the media and then backtracked and apologized, right? At one point he said something. I'd have to go back and look. I'm paraphrasing, but basically he said, you know, well, you know, my receivers aren't catching any deep balls. And then he, he had to go back and say, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, you know. So I, I, if I was Saskatchewan, I would be trying to encourage Cody to work with a sports psychologist, try to shut out the noise, stay off social media, and focus at the season one game at a time because he is still a relatively young man. He has not been the face of a franchise for very long. And if he thought the pressure was high in 2021, 2022, Riders playing at home, it's going to be even higher this season. And he's going to be, he's going to have to be at his best to live up to it. And hey, the higher the risk, the higher the reward. If he pulls it off and wins the Great Cup at home, then he is a hero for life, right? He's going to be heralded alongside Linecaster and Durant and all those quarterbacks who, who helped that franchise achieve great things. But They'll build a statue to him at, at Absolutely. Field 
during the Grey Cup. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, um, you know, and, and, and Cody Fajardo seems like a great person. That'd be a great story for that city and that franchise and, and Cody. Um, but again, it's a double-edged sword playing, uh, you know, being the face of the most passionate, you know, uh, franchise in the league is, is great when things are, are, are running smoothly. It's a nightmare when things are going poorly. Just ask Dask, Dak Prescott, what it's like being the face of the, of the Dallas Cowboys. Right. Um, so anyways, I, I, that, that's my take on, on Saskatchewan. I think they will be a good team. I just think, uh, Cody, I, I hope he's learned something since 2021, because again, as I said, the pressure is going to be ultra high this year on that whole team because of the great cup coming to Regina and especially on him. All right. Well, appreciate you joining, joining me tonight, John. Uh, great to have you from three down and, uh, hope everything's going well out that way. Thanks for having me. All best. This is the Rouge, White, and Blue podcast, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.